Just last year, this was all underwater. Yeah, gruesome discoveries. Plunging water levels, three months, five bodies. People were like, hey, look at this. They've been finding bodies in the lake. Maybe one will be your dad. And then I'd get a call from the coroner's office in Vegas. Nobody crawls into a barrel and shoots themselves in the head, okay? That's a mob hit. I always say, look, if we can relate to Finding Nemo, which is a fish, then I'm sure we can relate to a black character. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't think they could have cast it better. Calling a dwarf dishonest in her own home? I won't repeat some of the stuff that's been said. Yeah, it will blow everyone's mind. Incredibly austere out here. It's about eight o'clock in the morning. We're driving to Lake Mead. You can see the desert around us outside of Las Vegas. Lake Mead is at its lowest level ever, and bodies keep appearing at the bottom of the lake. And we're about to find out what else is down there. I've been doing this for over 20 years, and I've never done this intersection between climate change, catastrophe, and mafia murder mystery. It's crazy. I think Lake Mead's a good dumping ground because it's hard to dig out there in the desert. Wetter is better. Easier to put a body in a barrel and sink it than it is to go out and dig a hole. Less work. What do you get when you mix a city with a notorious past? Alleged mafia leaders charged with skimming $2 million from the Las Vegas gambling casinos. Murder, extortion, loan sharking, and bribing. With an environmental crisis of epic proportions. A disaster in the desert. Where a disappearing lake and the cement shoot reputation of Las Vegas mobsters all meet. People like stories about the good guy and the bad guy. Depending who writes the story, I represent the bad guy. My sister was like, hey, that kind of looks like a skeleton, like a skull. Hey, look at this. They've been finding bodies in the lake. Maybe one will be your dad. And I was like, no. And then? And then I get a call from the coroner's office in Vegas. I think if we really had the resources, we would find close to a thousand bodies. Lake Mead is just barely starting to show its secrets. It's basically the Colorado River, so wherever it ran naturally is the deepest part of the lake. How much worse do you think it's gonna get? Well, it's gonna go 28 more feet from what it is now by this time next year. Under the baking heat of the desert sun, a phenomenon is unfolding before our very eyes. An historic drought driven by climate change, and it's plunging the water level in Lake Mead, which is the biggest reservoir in the U.S., where seven states and at least 25 million people get their drinking water. 
Lake Mead when it was nice and full in the late 90s and beginning in the early 2000s, we were looking at a level that was 1,200 feet above sea level. This year it's at 1,045 feet. When you think about how large this reservoir is, you're talking millions and millions of gallons. By now, you've already noticed the big white line in the mountains. They call that the bathtub ring. That's where the water used to be just a couple of decades ago. We noticed it like 10 miles out. Yeah. You see the bathtub rings, you know, from way out there. Yeah, the top like of the, the first line. first thing you notice. DJ Jenner is my guide for this expedition. He's been boating, diving, and working these waters for years now. So when you first got into this business, did you think that one of the main parts of your work would be actually following the shrinking of this lake? No, it's probably gone down like 40 feet. You're kind of watching in real time the recession of this lake. You're seeing it. Yeah, there's still plenty of water for people to come out and enjoy the lake, but it is going down pretty quickly. So you said there are, there, there are rattlesnakes here? <laughs> yeah, there's rattlesnakes, coyotes. This boat looks like it was from the 60s or something oh, it's like actually that. big. Yeah, it was a big boat. Underwater. Just last year, this was all underwater. Yeah, I have pictures of it. This is the old engine. It's huge. Yeah, engine, di uh, diesel engine. An espresso machine? Yeah. Or like a juicer? Yeah, that's like the froth thing. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it really gives you an idea of how fast the lake is receding, that where we are right now was underwater a year ago. Because this just looks like desert to me right now. It's an iron? An iron. What's different with this drop is that it's been a drop over 20 years. It is based on these temperature-driven droughts that we've seen in the region. And not far below the surface, an entire history, artifacts of Lake Mead's past, like these structures that were part of building the Hoover Dam. But in its wake, some of Lake Mead's long-held mysteries are being revealed. <laughs> well, have they always been finding bodies here? Yeah, the main reason why people die out here is because they don't wear life jackets. And they can't swim really well. Sometimes they find the bodies, sometimes they don't. So that, that's what most of the bodies that are coming up is that. Between May and August of 2022, the remains of five human bodies turned up on Lake Mead's withering waters. Gruesome discovery. A second set of human remains were found at Lake Mead Another yesterday. Another set of human remains have been found at Lake Startling Mead. Startling discovery Saturday afternoon. A fourth set of human remains are found. Investigators are still on the scene working to find answers. Almost all of them the result of accidental drownings on the lake. I think, you know, the first picture I, I want you to show me is the one of you and your dad in the boat. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's our most recent one. Yeah, I was probably that same age, probably about almost 15. This was the boat we were in. I remember that's where he put his shirt and his keys before he jumped in. What remains are painful memories. These were parents, siblings, friends. And if they were anything like Thomas Ernt, they adored their family. So take me back to that day in 2002. One of our traditions, is what we call it, is a midnight jump. We would take the boat out when it was dark in kind of the middle of the lake because we thought it was fun. And we would jump off the boat and swim back and get in the boat because it was dark. We took our boat out. It was probably like 10 o'clock. I think it was a little bit wavier that night. He jumped in. And he was like, is anybody coming in with me? Just kind of joking around. And we were like, no, you're crazy. It's cold. It's windy. He goes to try to swim back. And I remember he was swimming and his hand hit the ladder. And he goes, man, the boat's moving too fast. I can't quite swim fast enough to to get on the ladder. All of a sudden, maybe like a few seconds later, we heard help. And we were like, oh, crap. So I'm like running to the front of the boat trying to call 911. We heard help one more time. And we had a light, but we couldn't really see very much what was going on. A sheriff boat arrived, and then they had helicopters come in with lights so we could finally see. And at that point, we didn't hear anything or see him anymore. We really started crying because we had to go back without him. Like, we didn't even know where he was. So... And they had an ambulance, oh, sorry, I'm gonna cry. They had an ambulance set up um, because they had had the helicopters fly in and they thought they would find him. So they had an ambulance set up on shore just in case they found him so that they could like, you know, help him if, if it was fine and they never found him. Vanished without a trace. And that left Tina and her family without closure for years. So when bodies began turning up in Lake Mead earlier this year, it brought with it just just a glimmer. Maybe. Just maybe. Did you follow the news about bodies being found? Yes, and people were sending me articles. Like, people that had known our story from 20 years ago were like, hey, look at this. They've been finding bodies in the lake. Like, maybe one will be your dad. And I was like, no, he's, like, they weren't able to find him then. They're not going to be able to find him. Are you upset that there was so much hoopla about bodies being found and the connection to the mob? Yes. So at first, um, when the media had reached out, I was nervous that they were going to associate my dad with the mob. And I wanted it to kind of be a separate, you know, I was like, that hadn't, we didn't have anything to do with that. This was totally a tragic. So I think that's why I was so willing to share our story is because... Mm -hmm. I didn't want him associated with that because he really meant a lot to our family. But there were other bodies being found, some under conditions so mysterious that drowning felt unlikely. And it was this baffling whodunit in particular that caught the world's attention. The guy was found in a barrel. He had the Kmart clothes on. He was obviously shot in the head. If we ever drained Lake Mead, we are going to find the criminal element of Las Vegas in this lake. Was this finally Vegas's checkered history revealing itself to the world? 
Now, before we go any further, let's talk a little bit about the mob, shall we? Particularly, what it meant to the rise of Sin City. Welcome to the Vegas Mob Tour. All right, so with that said, my name's Adam. I'm going to be your tour guide today. My name is Adam Flowers and I am one of the owners of Vegas Specialty Tours, which runs the Vegas Mob Tour. We're gonna have fun. So with that said, let's get started. The Vegas Mob Tour is a two and a half hour experience. You go around Las Vegas and you hear all about how the town came to be, the different mobsters that helped build the town. This is where it happened, right here. And they shot 14 rounds. This is what he was looking at when the car went kaboom. What? is a mobster or was a mobster, I would have to say is a organized criminal. And when I say organized criminal, I mean, these were a group of guys that uh, started, organized crime goes all the way back to you know, prohibition days. What can I say, you know, I mean, they came into Las Vegas to build these different casinos, which they skimmed money off of, and, and large amounts of money, mind you. If we don't kick 20% up to the bosses, we're dead. Nobody's supposed to know that they exist. So the fact that they did exist, these things did happen, people want the story. They want to hear about it. They want to know what was it like. They want to know what were these guys like. This is Mickey Cohen. Yeah. You know, very famous LA gangster. This is a suit, you know, he was a snazzy dresser and yeah. so we're reflecting that apparently he had ocd he did yeah he definitely did why are people so fascinated by the mafia and specifically in, in las vegas you know i think when it comes to the mob there's something there's a lot more personalities in the mob there's people you can somewhat identify with they have families they have mm. personalities that are bigger than life it's a shadow history of america right these guys are involved in corruption of our politicians, of our judges, of our police officers. We look at them as somehow part of the fabric of our society, and we're fascinated by how they got away with it, right? They got away with it for so long. Why were they so violent? They had to be. They wanted word on the street that you don't want to steal from them. You don't want to not pay them. So the violence was a way to control people. And that kind of brutality brought in almost deified mythos to the Vegas of old, immortalized in film lore, like The Godfather. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. And Casino. The most typical way the mob would kill somebody would be to shoot him with a 22, you know, handgun in the back of the head. Keep it simple, you know, and, and a close-up shot so you don't miss. Who are your top 10 or 15 mafiosos, mob guys in Vegas? So you, you start with Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, you know, Johnny Roselli was a, was a big player here. Frank Costello, Tony Spilatro, you got Frank Collada. I got uh, phone calls from 19 different cities, from people whose last names ended in vowels and they wanted to hire me. Fellas whose last name ended in vows, they would call Oscar. I'm Oscar Goodman, um, a lawyer by profession, 
purportedly the representative of mobsters. My representative, for instance, Meyer Lansky, who allegedly was the head of organized crimes financial empire. Representative Tony Spalaccio, who supposedly was the henchman sent out from Chicago to keep the streets of Las Vegas under their control. Frank Rosenthal, who was a hidden boss of several of these casinos. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of the last man walking, and I want to keep on walking. Well, here's Oscar Goodman giving counsel to his client and friend, reputed mobster, Tony the Ant Spalaccio, as depicted in the movie Casino. The FBI used to say that one of my clients killed 27 people. And they said, how could I represent somebody who killed 27 people? And I said, how can you be so dumb that you didn't arrest them? You know, my clients were not educated folks, and I became their mouthpiece. And uh, it's a good thing they had me. My clients were very quiet, very gentlemanly, and it was a business to them. It wasn't a situation where they were trying to get back at somebody, not trying to hurt somebody, unless they felt somebody had to be hurt. And then they did it, as I say, they didn't throw the body into Lake Mead. So we have a body in a barrel in Lake Mead from decades ago, unidentified with a bullet in his head. And all fingers start pointing to the wise guys of yesteryear. The reputed mobsters that I represented, they had their M.O. And if they were going to kill somebody, they would kill them with a, a 22, but they would take them out to the desert and bury them in the, the desert. They didn't throw the body into Lake Mead. It didn't make any sense to me as far as a mob hit was concerned. Seems uh, very amateurish. Nobody crawls into a barrel and shoots themselves in the head, okay? <laughs> it just isn't, that's a mob hit. It took decades, right, for this barrel to surface. And I imagine that, you know, the, the people who dumped this body in the lake never expected it to emerge, right? Because they're not climate solid scientists. They don't have any idea that this lake is gonna drop the way it did. Lake Mead is revealing its secrets. In process, it's revealing Las Vegas' secrets. Mm. And I think as a historian, I'm fascinated by what we end up dredging out of Lake Mead. There's a lot of things we don't know about the mob in Las Vegas still. The mob purposely didn't keep notes. Right. They didn't keep diaries, they didn't keep journals. They threw away and burned all the evidence, right? So we don't know a lot about what really happened here. And perhaps some of the things dumped into Lake Mead over time might help us to fill in some of those gaps. There's a truth that's easy to overlook in this story. Many of those missing are real people, not the ghosts of old Vegas gangsters. This is 1990, okay, so that's, he's just a kid there. This is our family, so that's probably, yeah, I got my braces on when I was 13, so probably close to the time he died. He's rocking the stash here. Yep. Good. <laughs> In Tina's case, 20 years passed. No answers, no closure, no way to say goodbye to her father. You've been coming to Lake Mead your whole life? Yeah. Until the water fell just enough and Lynette Melvin and her sister decided to spend a day on the lake. So we were just walking, talking, complaining about life and stuff. As one does. <laughs> just the normal girl stuff. Uh-huh. And I almost tripped on the skull. 
And I just kept walking and I was just rambling on about something. Oh, so you and didn't know what you tripped over? No, my sister was the one that was like, hey, that looks like bones. And we kind of start digging around in the sand a little bit, uncovering it, because we're kind of under the impression it's sheep bones and a sheep skull. And then after a couple minutes, it became very apparent when we saw a jawbone with intact teeth that had a filling. My sister calls the park service and they said that they would be on their way when they can. And then they came about maybe hour and a half, two hours later. Did they come with a forensic team? Two of them came, one with a, a canine dog. I believe both employed by the park service. And then I get a call from the coroner's office in Vegas. And she's like, hey, are you Tina? And she said in their system, they keep a report of all the missing bodies that have been reported. And ours was in Colville Bay. My dad was a 6'4 male. And she's like, there were some ladies there who were going kayaking and they happened to stumble on some remains. And she's like, I think it might be your father. DNA tests followed. And then finally, an answer to the question that Tina had been asking for two decades. And they called me maybe a month later, and she's like, Tina, it's a match. And I was like, wow. How did you feel? I think my first feeling was like, wow, I'm so glad he was there, just where he wanted to be. And then my second feeling was, wow, I like really have closure now. You tell your kids about it? All the time. Yeah. My favorite thing to tell my kids is uh, that he would have been the best grandpa in the world. He's kind of their little guardian angel. <laughs> did you feel like you did something good by providing the Arndt family some closure? Yeah, and I'm happy about that. Not happy for the discovery itself. Not happy for the grief that they're feeling, but happy that they have closure. When you think about your dad, do you often think about it in association with the lake? He died in the place that he loved. And I have so much comfort in that, that he is happy there. And how great for him, for us, what great memories we get to leave there, you know? So many memories, and still so many mysteries remain here. So many unanswered questions. We may never know all of Lake Mead's secrets and what else lies beneath these waters. things go fantasy, sci-fi, and comic books. This is the Mecca. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of self-identified nerds have assembled. So, well, nerd out. You can be whoever you want to be here. Iron Man, the Joker, and even whoever this green fish man is. What are you guys dressed up as? Winter Soldier and Captain Yay! America. They're 
best friends in the Marvel Universe and we're best friends in, real in life. life. But increasingly, Limitless Imagination seems to stop for some fans at race. I've received tons of backlash from certain people that um, don't want to see a black elf. I mean, it's just I got a lot of heat usually online. Most people aren't that brave up in, you know, in person. Do you think the comic book, the sci-fi, and the fantasy world are ready to get more diverse? Yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, and yeah, it's like, it's not ready. They are getting more diverse. Yeah, it's happening. It's We're happening watching right it in real time. My representation, like in film and things, is important because it gives people an opportunity to kind of see us in a different light and say, okay, yes, there's a black elf and there's nothing wrong with that. Back in the day, sci-fi and fantasy were niche. But shows set in Middle-earth or movies set in the multiverse are now the tent poles holding up nearly every major studio's bottom line. And just as many other industries push for more inclusion, the fantastic and fictional are ready for a sea change, with massive franchises seeing more diverse characters in major roles. And while most fans are stoked, a small but loud online minority has aimed backlash at the stars in those new adaptations. Attacking actors like Steve Toussaint in HBO's House of the Dragon. This is an absurdity. Moses Ingram in Disney Plus's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Next time. And Sofia Nomvete in Amazon's The Rings of Power. It is violent, it is harassment, it is aggressive, it is racist, it's sometimes threatened the lives of us and our families, and that is what, we, is what we handle every single day. Just before we step onto set, these are the battles that we're fighting. Amazon is suspending reviews of its new Lord of the Rings series. It says the 72-hour hold is to make sure the reviews for Rings of Power are legit and prevent internet trolls from bringing down their score. When the Rings of Power came out, all the keyboard critics left one-star reviews criticizing the show's diverse cast and its departure from J.R.R. Tolkien's Eurocentric worldview. Calling a dwarf dishonest in her own home. It's a recipe for strong gravy. Sophia plays the dwarf queen Disa. She's one of the first black women to star in a lead role in the Tolkien universe. It's Middle Earth. It's up for the taking. One of Tolkien's most incredible joys is that he writes so much for us to delve into. Everything is up for interpretation. Christ Allen is an OG at cons like this. Yeah, brother! His mission, creating spaces for nerdy people of color. Woo, sorry about that. A group he says has always been there, but long been ignored. I am watching people of all colors, right? Cosplaying, having a great time. Yeah, there's a lot of racism online. And if I spend so much time being miserable with how unhappy some of it makes me feel, then I'm not making a difference in somebody's actual life. If you're turning around and you're saying they're putting politics in my comic books, you never read comic books. Most comic book creators always tackled those types of topics. For 50 plus years, everything looked like you. Everything was tailored to, to your feelings, your thoughts, and your experience. And what do you think happens when that starts to change, right? You made me this thing, a monster. Javan Wade is that change. He's the latest actor to take on the role of Cyborg, 
aka Victor Stone, in DC's Doom Patrol. A role played by black men across decades. I always say, look, if we can relate to Finding Nemo, which is a fish, then I'm sure we can relate to a black character and a black superhero and black characters within sci-fi. Take a good look. Before Javan, in 1985, there was Ernie Hudson in Super Friends. You saying this is my fault? And in 2003, Kari Payton as the irreverent brawler of the animated Teen Titans series. Nice meeting you, kid, but I got butt to kick. Cool! He had so much personality. He was so much himself that you're almost like he wasn't a token in, yeah. in certain ways. You know, Kari Payton's ability to put Vic first as a human being, as a black man before the cybernetics of it all. It didn't feel like, oh, he's a black character. I'm like, okay, if I can make people feel just an inch, just an ounce of what I felt when I watched that show, then I feel like I would have done a half decent job. Those actors who do get cast, the amount of backlash that they get for playing these roles of characters who otherwise aren't even real, mm. just for the color of their skin. I mean, what do you make of that from where you sit? Yeah, I think it's sad. I think it's sad and it's a reflection of where we are at as a society. All these other black characters, black superheroes that there are, why are we talking about the five black superheroes that we can count on our right hand? That is the problem. And so if we had create from the writer's room, from the creation, from the inception of all of these different uh, characters and, and creations, then we wouldn't be fighting to then, you know, cast a black actor as something that was fictionalized as a, a, a white character because we would have our own. Folks are gonna come and check this out. Come that on. ownership is the next step. And with comics like Niobe, a series about a black half-elf bounty hunter, co-creator Sebastian Jones isn't asking for a seat at the table. He's building his own. Niobe's been with me since I was a kid, so she's been with me for 30 years. I was a young mixed kid growing up in England. I didn't really see myself represented in Comics or games, D&D, fantasy shows, all those types of things. The bottom line is when you see a young black or brown or Asian girl or guy and they're five years old, seven years old, they're not thinking of that stuff. They're just saying, hey, I could be Superman. So gorgeous. Thank you so much. Got the whole collection. At Niobe's booth, Destiny Brown. She's a cosplayer channeling her inner warrior and all-around badass. I really love cosplaying Niobe because it gives me the opportunity to kind of, you know, channel that energy of being strong and feminine. That'll be $7.95, please. Her outfits are legit. Hello? But to no surprise, she says her cosplays of non-black characters trigger racist comments. The main one is just that, like, oh, that character isn't black, or, you know, they'll say, like, something looks funny here, or, like, the burnt version, or, like, monkey, or just, like, the worst things that you can possibly imagine. How do you react, and how does that, does it take a toll on your mental health? I feel like it used to, um, not so much anymore. Um, I realized that all I can do is embrace who I am as a person. I personally love who I am. I love my skin. You know, I love my hair. And like, no one can make me feel bad about that. What are some of the reactions that you've seen, uh, especially from the young people of color who are seeing themselves in you? I get emotional sometimes. Um, it's like one of my favorite things in the whole entire world to see like a little black girl come up to me and be like, oh, like you look beautiful or amazing or oh, like I want to dress up as this character. Oh yeah, I understand. That visceral feeling 
of simply being seen is one actress Lea Salonga can relate to. In 1990, Leia became the first Asian-American actress ever to win a Tony Award for the musical Miss Saigon. Leia Salonga, Miss Saigon. I remember my agent at the time calling on the phone and saying that he was going to submit me for a musical. But 10 minutes later, he calls back and he says, they're not going to see you because you're Asian. I was not the right ethnic background for this role. Okay. The moment did not stop Leia from becoming the first woman of color to voice a Disney princess. Singing iconic songs in Disney's Mulan and Aladdin. As a child growing up in the Philippines, I was one of those kids that had those Disney storybook tapes. So to lend my voice to a Disney princess was just, it just blew my mind because I was like, I was listening to one of these at five and now I'm, there's gonna be a five-year-old listening to my voice on a storybook tape. And now a new Disney princess is finding her voice. Halle Bailey playing Ariel in the upcoming film, The Little Mermaid. I was like, oh my gosh, she is so perfect. She's beautiful and sings like a dream and has so much hope in her eyes. I don't think they could have cast it better. But when Halle's casting was announced, racist comments flooded Twitter, hashtagging not my Ariel in protest of a black mermaid. I was like, oh my God, really? It, it, it didn't make any sense to me. I think older actors of color who know what it feels like should say something in defense of these younger actors who, you know, who are navigating their way through this business and, you know, hitting walls that they probably did not anticipate they'd be slamming into. Despite the online backlash, the industry is changing, and so are the faces who dominate it. It's a reminder our imaginations and the worlds we create with them are boundless. And if we're trying to make a level playing field in the real world, why not start with the ones in our heads? To the majority who are, who are our allies, I would say there's work to be done to support us so that we do not have to fight on our own. It's hard, it's tiring, it's emotional, it's exhausting, and it hurts. So please pick up your weapon of choice. <laughs> Whether it be your voice, or your arm for a hug, or your pen, um, or your camera. Support us and let us educate you. Feel safe with, with us to be able to talk about subjects and keep writing, keep producing, keep making, keep pushing those changes.